This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Hi, everybody. This week's show is going to be a little bit different, so uh, we wanted to start off by telling you a little bit about it. We just got back from Yakima Chief Hops Hop and Brew School up in Yakima, Washington. Surprise, surprise. And we recorded a podcast while we were there, but before we get into it, we wanted to talk a little bit about Hop and Brew School and uh, what we did, what we learned, how cool it was, and why you should think about going next year. So, Drew, you only got to be there for part of it, but I could tell that you had a really good time. Yeah, I mean, I was in Yakima for exactly 45 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just not enough is it no i came i came in late so but it was it was a really cool experience i mean one of course flying into the the yakima airport which is this super tiny airport it, probably the tiniest airport i've ever been in um with four flights a day so you guys schedule yourself accordingly but i mean just a cool little place you guys came and uh and picked me up uh, brian and john palmer and denny and i in a truck Driving through the, the the hills of Yakima Valley, and yeah, uh, Brian Brian Pierce, the North American sales manager for uh, Yakima Chief Hops, had kind of taken John and I out for a little private tour, and we picked Drew up about two thirds of the way through. Uh, unfortunately, he got in too late for some of the best tacos I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I'm still a little mad about that. I had an airport tarragon chicken salad sandwich. So why, <laughs> well, why, why, why don't you start uh, uh, talking about like what was on this little tour that you got to see? Okay, well, uh, Brian took us to a couple hop farms before we picked up Drew. And once we got Drew, we went to the uh, Zimmerman Research Center. And I'll let Drew talk a little bit more about that. The first hop farm that we went to was called Cornerstone. 
and it was started in 1938. Think of that, man. This hop farm has been there for 81 years, and it was the grandson of the guy who founded it that's running it now, a gentleman by the name of Graham, and I totally forgot his last name. But uh, we're going to have to get some pictures up for you guys to see this thing. Because while all the newer hop farms are steel and stuff like that, the basic infrastructure of this one is wood. Wooden gangways, uh, wooden frames for the machinery. Uh, just a truly, truly cool place. And a great contrast to all the other hop farms that we had seen. They... Uh, let me see. I think that they said that they run about 630 acres of hops there. That's a small farm. Uh, they are planning some expansions. They're going to be putting in new kilns and, and stuff like that and uh, just have big plans, but they don't have any plans to change the machinery. I uh, asked Graham if there were any problems using all this wooden stuff or if he ever wished that maybe it wasn't. He was like, no way, I love this stuff, we're going to keep it running forever. And it is it is really, really cool. Uh, after that, we went, oh, oh, I should mention too that they were harvesting Simcoe that day. And uh, we rubbed some of the Simcoe that were just coming in from the fields on the trucks. And I cannot remember ever smelling Simcoe that smelled any better than that. So uh, that that bodes well for the Simcoe harvest in general this year. So uh, then we headed over to the Sovi Hop Farm, uh, another family farm. Pretty much all of them are family farms around there, at least in the Yakima Chief world. There's no uh, big corporate hop farms. Everything is grown by families, and uh, a lot of the families who grow the hops are some of the owners of Yakima Chief Hops. Sovi is a uh, much, much more modern operation. Uh, a little bit smaller. They're 500 acres as opposed to the 630 at Cornerstone. But uh, still just as much pride in what they're doing. They were harvesting, let me see, I think that maybe they were harvesting Cascade that day. Uh, everybody had just gotten done harvesting Centennial um, at Cornerstone. They said that uh, they were going to take a break from their Simcoe harvest and go out and do either Cascade or Centennial because Yakima Chief has a, a quality program that they pretty much come out and monitor your fields and uh, check out how things are going. And when they think that the hops are ready to be picked, they'll tell you to pick. So uh, Graham at Cornerstone was going to take a break from picking Simcoe, go pick whichever of those two varieties it was that uh, Yakima Chief had told him were ready and then get back to the Simcoe. Uh, at uh, at Sovi, they were doing kind of the same thing, but, uh, you know, they were, they were pretty much sticking with the cascades that were on right then. Uh, after all that, we uh, went to get some tacos at Los Panchos. Should you ever find yourself in Toppenish, Washington, this is the food review part of the show, if you're ever in Toppenish, Washington, go find this little place called Los Panchos. It kind of looks like somebody's taco truck broke down there and they started putting pieces of plywood around it and just expanding. It's a, 
the kind of place where you might be afraid to go unless uh, somebody you knew had already been there and told you that it was safe to go. Amazing tacos, just absolutely amazing tacos. Uh, I think I had an Atavada and a Chicharron, uh, and they were just remarkable. So anyway, there's the uh, there's the food and travel tip from the the program. Then we headed out to the airport to pick up Drew and head out to the Charles Zimmerman Research Center. Uh, Zimmerman actually started a lot of the hop breeding programs and uh, the particular breeds of hops that are around today. So uh, I've been there before, so I was really glad that Drew got a chance to go. Well, of course, you know, it was really nifty to see because, one, the amount of actual work and the amount of actual time that goes into making a new hop variety is astonishing. Yeah, so, yeah. Let's let's just take a, a moment here to talk about that. On average, it takes eleven years to get a new variety of hop from the first little trial onto the market, and you know something like you know out of out of twenty thousand or fifty thousand plants, one is going to make it. Yeah, I mean, so that sabro that you're enjoying, for instance, that's been in flight as a thing for over a decade. Um, That's right. Kind, uh, kind of absolutely amazing. When we got there, of course, the very first thing that we did was we were greeted uh, by Puma, uh, <laughs> the, the Puma the dog. And That's you right. Guys, you guys know me. I will go pet every dog I ever see. So wait, wait, that's both of us. That's both of us. Yeah. Well, and Puma followed us around just to make sure that we weren't doing anything untoward. She was the secure detail detail for the research farm, and we started off by going into. What almost feels like the weird uh, verboten territory of hop breeding, the f- tiny little field, and I'm not kidding, tiny, tiny little field of male hop plants. Yeah, and what would you say, like maybe maybe a couple acres? No, not even. I mean, that was like, I mean, that was like the equivalent of like somebody's backyard. <laughs> I mean, like a large you, backyard, yeah, but still. I mean, yeah, if you took your large backyard and knocked everything down and just made it into a hop field, that's what this was. And it was really cool to see, like, the male hops there and then also see, you know, they had the occasional female in there to, in order to do the breeding and to see, like, you know, the seeded hops and all this sort of, sort of stuff. And then, of course, you know, <laughs> the one that uh, cracked me up was, I guess they, they loaned part of the field out to the USDA because, right. uh, uh, you know, on the other side, uh, uh, separated by a lane and a couple of bits of distance uh, from the male plants, was this giant field of a hop I have to admit I haven't thought about in years, and that's Galena. So Yeah, man, I'm the same way. When I first started brewing, I used Galena fairly regularly, and it just it kind of went away, and I haven't seen it. Yeah, so th- there's all those old-school hops like uh, Galena, Eroica, um, <laughs> you know, all these things that, that, that were there. I think like Brewer's Gold was a big one when I first started brewing as well. Um, and, yeah, those all kind of went... By the way, I don't even think Royka is being grown anymore. While I was there, I had a chance to be a guest on uh, the Brewing Network with uh, with Justin. Uh, I had John Palmer, uh, Nick Ziegler, and uh, Nathan Smith and me. And we talked about some of these varieties of hops that used to be around all the time and aren't anymore. So, uh, you know, if, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, check that out on the Brewing Network, but then come right back here. And so after we got a chance to walk through the small little field, uh, by the way, one 
travel tip as well. If you're going there during harvest season, uh, make sure you wear something other than slip-on chucks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to warn you, but I decided it would be more fun just to let you wear them. Yeah, because uh, so, remember, Yakima and that whole valley is actually kind of the high desert. So except for where they're watering, the dirt in the fields is dirt, and it's <laughs> soft dirt that you sink into. Uh, soft, which I, powdery dirt. Yeah, which I quickly figured out when we hopped back in the truck. I grabbed a couple of beers and showed up at the experimental breeding area, or actually, sorry, the experimental planting area. And holy crap, yeah, you were saying like 20,000 plants. Yeah, there are 20,000 plants in this one patch, one of each. Yep. And yeah, you're going to think like maybe like there's one of those that's going to actually come out of the other side. And we just spent, I don't know, an, an hour. Yeah, walking, I think so. walking up and down these rows, finding hop crosses that were, I think the really interesting ones was the ones that were the hop crosses with a wild Ukrainian hop. Yeah, yeah. those were pretty cool. And there were some hop crosses with Neo Mexicanus and others going on there as well. And yeah, we just, you know, John, Denny, and I and, and Brian were just walking down the fields and looking for these white tagged hop plants and grabbing cones off of them and, you know, giving them a rub and smell. And it was, I, I should mention that the, the white tag means that they have been identified by Jason Peralt, who's the head of uh, the breeding program for uh, Yakima Chief. They've been identified by him as maybe having some potential to move on to something else. So rather than just trying to rub 20,000 different hops and figure out what they were, we kind of went for the ones that he'd sort of pre-selected. Yeah, and there were some interesting aromas in there. I mean, we had... But there were a couple that smelled like uh, chili peppers. Um, and yeah, that, the interesting thing was that, uh, you know, uh, Brian Pierce was mentioning that Yakima Chief is having a salsa contest for their employees. Uh, and so it just so happened that one of the hops we, we grabbed reminded people of jalapeno. So then he started looking for ones that smell like onion, which, you know, you may have run across. But the one he was looking for we never found was the one that smelled like tomato. Yeah, a hop salsa, but it was, yeah. it was a it was a really interesting experience. I will also tell you that after hop rubbing, if you have a beer in your hand, don't make the mistake that I did, which was at one point in time my fingers were sticky, and I was like, oh, oh. yeah, that that thing that starts to bother you and gets into your brain, and I went and licked my fingers. Oh no, you didn't. I did. I couldn't taste anything for like thirty minutes afterwards, <laughs> including the very nice beer that was in my hand. That explains that funny expression you had on your face. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that was good. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I was just—I was really impressed by the amount of labor that was going on there to make. Yeah. To make this yeah. thing. Hops are amazingly labor-intensive. Uh, you know, when you see what it takes to grow them and hear about, you know, how long it takes to develop them, you're kind of like in awe that they don't cost a hundred times as much as they do, huh? Yeah. Well, and the other thing, of course, was we talked about this with Brian on the field. Like it's very interesting to me that hops as an agricultural product don't show their actual value and what they can actually do until you go through all of this processing, right? Disregarding the growing, right? And the breeding and all that selection, like hops don't really show you what they can do until you've actually brewed a beer with them, right? It's not like walking into an orchard and picking an apple and going, yeah, you know, that's a good apple. 
you know, the hops, the hops themselves don't really yeah, shine until you go and you go into this industrial product that we all love. Yeah, you have to like take a look at that uh, that hop hanging on the vine, extrapolate what that's going to be like once it gets dried. Then you kind of have to extrapolate what that's going to be like in a beer, interacting with the malt and the yeast and any other hops you put in there, and uh, you know the, the the inevitable oxidation that no matter how much you try to control it, there will be some. So yeah, man, it it is. It's really interesting. You can you can pick those hops off the vine and rub them. But then, unless you have a lot of experience like those guys do, it's hard to tell what the heck they're going to turn out to be. I know. So it's it's very cool. And yeah, like I said, it's amazing that yeah, these hops don't don't cost you more than they actually do. And the good thing is about Yakima Chief is that as a growers collective, remember the company is made up of all these independent farms that have kind of banded together. And in fact, right. I think they just added three more farms. Four more, actually. Four more. So there you go. They just added four more farms to the collective. And what's really cool about it is that one of the things that has always been a problem for hop farmers has been this sort of boom bust cycle and where, you know, too much, you know, too many hops are grown. So therefore the prices drop, which then means that the farmers are getting hurt because, you know, they may end up spending more money to grow the hops than they're getting back. And so having a collective to help handle hop distribution contracts and do predictive analysis on hop needs and all this is actually really good for the the industry as a whole. You know, it helps stabilize it for them. Um, right. And also, you know, it gives us a really good set of contacts to be able to know where we're going to go for quality hops. <laughs> That's right. And as cool as it was going out into the fields, there was a lot of great stuff going on uh, right there at Yakima Chief itself. They had uh, converted several of their warehouses into big lecture halls, um, and uh, the, one of the office buildings was set up so that we got to go through the same process that brewers coming in for hop selection go through. Uh, we got to, uh, for instance, we had, like the group I was in, we had two lots of centennial hops uh, from different farms or different fields and different farms, and we did a rub on those and tried to select which one that we would choose if we were going to be choosing for a brewery. And let me tell you, it, most people don't realize how much difference there can be. And when you say centennial hops, you kind of think that you're getting centennial hops. But that's not quite the case. You're getting centennial hops, but one lot of centennial hops may not be quite like another. Yeah, and I think that was driven home by one of the talks that I got to see. So the day after I arrived, Denny and I gave a talk, and they had a homebrew track and a pro brewer's track. And at one point, I sat in on the pro brewer's track, and they had um, a woman from uh, Brewery de Proof in Belgium, and Anne. Yeah, Anne Van Hall. She yeah. uh, teaches brewing at the University of Ghent. There you go. Um, and she was talking about hop genetics. And one of the problems that they'd had was they had a client who was brewing a beer with them, and it was a, a single hop, I think, uh, Amarillo uh, beer, and one year it won a gold. And the next year, it was completely different. They couldn't figure out why. And so she started to do investigations and found that the second lot of hops, that second year hop lot, the hops came from Idaho as opposed to coming from Washington. Now, that's not that much of a difference. And so they started they started this whole hop genetic study and evaluation of the whole idea of terroir, uh, which, of course, some people think is a dirty word. But uh, they, they did this. And I think the fascinating thing, and I tweeted this out or um, uh, social media did out that 
the Amarillo from Yakima and the Amarillo from Idaho were completely different in terms of their sensory profile. And then she also added in Amarillo that was grown in, I believe, Germany and did an analysis on that. And then when they looked at what was closer to each other, the Amarillo grown in Idaho and the Amarillo grown in Germany were closer together in sensory profile than the Washington and Idaho Amarillo. <laughs> so even though it's a half a world away, somehow they got closer to the sensory profile to each other than they did from a state line. Yeah, right. And they, and neither one of them got very close to the Amarillo that uh, had made the award-winning beer. Yeah, so it's kind of really interesting to see that. Uh, Annie gave a great talk with some really great samples on um, the, the, you know, the American Noble Hops, which are coming soon to the homebrew level. Yeah, yeah, uh, we got we got a commitment that uh, they will be widely available by January, uh, but beyond that, uh, I don't. If you can find them, grab some and brew with them. Yeah, and Annie made big surprise for Annie a pilsner with all these different American nobles in them, and you could really see what was going on with the American nobles. So it was really kind of nice. Uh, and then yeah, I'm I'm a big f- fan of them for for lagers, man. They just work great for that. Yeah, and I like them in the saisons too. So there you go. Anybody surprised? No. All right. <laughs> but yeah, it was also it was also really great. You know, got got a chance to go explore the the little town of Yakima, and you know, see what was see what was out there. Got uh, got to stop at the sports center, the infamous sports finally, center. Yes. Finally, Drew makes it to the sports center. Yes, a very nice uh, a very nice beer selection in well, what's now uh, an apparently well cleaned up uh, place. Yeah, well, you know what they've they've cleaned it up, but it's still got that wonderful cheesy dive bar vibe. It does. And then uh, we closed off our trip, or at least I closed off my portion of the trip, hanging out with you guys uh, at Bailbreaker, which was right. Great. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to say that you know I managed to score a six pack of Bottom Cutter to come away with, which is their double IPA, and and I was very happy with it until I got home and I put a can in the fridge, and I. When I went to go pour it, I looked at the the dating on the can, and the date on the can said eight twenty six twenty nineteen. I bought it on like September fourth. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, no, I, I, actually, sorry, I think I bought it on September first. All right, come on, that's too old. What are we doing? It's more than twelve hours old. Why? Why? It's dead beer. Yeah, man. Uh, I'll tell you. Outside of Hop and Brew School, Bail Breaker and Sports Center are pretty good reasons to go to Yakima. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember between the 45 hours I was there, I went to Bailbreaker, I went to Single Hill, I went to uh, Kawichi Canyon, yep. and then also uh, went to the uh, Hop Nation uh, right around the corner from where we were. So, yeah, I, I did my yeah. best with my 45 hours. <laughs> I missed Hop Nation somehow. I guess that's a goal for next year. Yeah, they're in an old, I think, uh, Haas warehouse. And the brewery right. is underneath the uh, in the in the old basement area, and boy, is it a creepy vibe! Like you could see a horror film being filmed in there, because <laughs> it goes on forever with darkness. So uh, there's kind of like a, a little uh, assessment of Hop and Brew School from our point of view before we get into the podcast part here. It will be happening again next year, and I'm going to be there again, and I hope that maybe somehow a miracle happens and you can make it again, too. I would definitely uh, encourage everybody who has any sort of interest in in brewing and understanding how hops come about and understanding what's going to be available soon 
and understanding how to use this stuff to get your butts up to, to Yakima. It's a, a nice little side trip and, you know, go see some high desert there in Washington. Yep, indeed. So uh, before we kick into the podcast here, I just need to give you a couple show notes. Uh, this was recorded in a gigantic hop warehouse, and there are times when it really sounds like it's recorded in a giant hop warehouse. So hang in there. The audio quality can be challenging, but uh, there's a lot of good information and a lot of fun in here. We talked to some guys from Yakima Chief. We spent some time with our good buddy John Palmer. And we finish up talking to Cassie Salinas, the winner of our Hop and Brew School registration contest. We're going to be running another one of those next year. So uh, start making your plans because if you're a winner, you're going to get to go to Hop and Brew School next year. Yeah, and you'll be able to hear. Yeah, and I think you'll be able to hear the excitement in Cassie's voice. <laughs> yeah, she was definitely excited. So uh, here comes the podcast part of the podcast. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next time around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer, so come on in, come on in, just come on in. Pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. 
hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers, and more importantly, later today at 2 o'clock. We'll be right outside that door with books to sign, so come by and grab one. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we are actually live at the 29th iteration of Yakima Chief Hop's Hop and Brew School. He said Yakima again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> because we're here, we have some great guests that have uh, that are here with us this week. Uh, we have Mike Carpenter and Steve Gettle and Alex Rumbles, <laughs> all of Yakima Chief. Uh, <laughs> Did I get that oh, wrong? I love it. Yeah, that's you okay. did. We're brothers okay. from another mother. Yeah, yeah okay. that's right. Jeez. Oh, Not the last even, names. I haven't even been drinking yet. We're going to be talking to Globetrotter John Palmer about where he's been, what he's going, and what he's seen. And we're also going to be talking to Cassie Salinas, the winner of the Hop and Brew School giveaway this year. Um, so first we're going to start off talking to Steve Carpenter and Mike Gettle. See, I got that right this time, right? <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, guys, this is something that I look forward to coming to every single year. It is so much fun and it's so instructive. But what I really love about it is the whole theory behind Yakima Chief being owned by the people who grow the hops. Steve, you're one of the grower owners, so why don't you tell us about the whole Yakima Chief theory and story? Well, technically, Denny, I used to be one of the grower owners ah. about 12 years ago. My family is still one of the grower owners, and then I hopped onto the management team back in uh, 2008. Uh, but the whole idea behind a grower-owned company is is really to build some transparency into the industry, uh, to uh, make sure the flow of information from our uh, hop growers, uh, who we consider as customers, is flowing to our brewery customers, who we also consider as customers. So that's the whole idea, is, is to, to get that flow of information going from the uh, brewers back to the growers and vice versa. And you're the chief supply chain officer. What the heck right. does that mean? That's a good question. I wish I knew. <laughs> um, no, it's actually, uh, when, when Mike, uh, we hired him a couple years ago as CEO, I slipped into kind of a role of chief supply chain officer. So my responsibilities are grow relations, uh, building those quality programs and making sure they run correctly, such as the Green Chief program. Uh, our footprints program, which is more involved with varietal purity, uh, with some of our new varieties that we get out, and uh, basically just quality in general. Make sure that the hops that are coming in, uh, our team here is able to preserve that quality and uh, get them out to our customers. And so, and what is the Green Chief program? Would you explain that? Yeah, just real briefly, our Green Chief program is something we developed back in I think 2009. And it was designed at the time to really be kind of a quality assurance program, but it also encompasses our sustainability values. Uh, we've got a best practices team, uh, which is made up of a group of growers that meet on a monthly basis during the growing season to discuss uh, sustainable practices, best practices. And uh, we also, uh, part of that is we've rolled in kind of our corporate social responsibility part of that as well, just to make sure that we're 
treating uh, people right, that we are giving back to our communities, and uh, uh, we do business in a lot of places in the world, and it's really important that our communities are healthy. So we've got a program designed specifically to uh, look at that and uh, make sure that we're doing the right thing. Man, you were like really covering all the bases. I, I try to do my best. <laughs> and uh, Mike, you're the CEO. What, what does that mean that you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, just try to herd all of our cats, basically. <laughs> uh, we've, we've grown quite a bit in the last couple of years, and so it's, uh, it, it's really, I guess, a big part of it is making sure we can build on the solid base that the organization had before around quality. And uh, I think there's always a risk, and you know that as brewers, that as you grow your business, how you maintain uh, consistent quality, how you do that over time. Frazier mentioned that a little bit uh, a few minutes ago for BrewDog, but it's really just to try to make sure that we have the resources and the con- continued focus on making a really good quality product. And uh, as you grow your business, as you're trying to serve more of your customers around the world, uh, we really take that very seriously. So we have uh, really to start every day, every year, we have two primary objectives, our, our single most Important objective is the safety of all of the people working at Yakima Chief uh, because we are around machinery, so we really put a lot of emphasis on that. And, and especially right now where we have a number of uh, seasonal workers coming in to help with the harvest time, so proper training. But then the other one is quality. And uh, everybody at Yakima Chief knows that uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have a business if we don't deliver a good quality product to our brewers, and so we spend a lot of time on that. And so my job is just to try to help make sure people have enough resources to, to cover safety and quality. Cool. And, and how how many hops actually flow through this facility? Uh, All together this year for Yakima Chief, uh, we will handle uh, somewhere between 38 and 39 million pounds, depending on the final yields. Uh, So I I just cannot even comprehend that number. This makes me, as a home brewer, feel uh, grossly inadequate for my batches of beer that involve five ounces of hops. No, but you know what? We we seriously take uh, take as seriously that that two ounce packet as we do you know a, a, a forty four pound box or a two hundred kilo drum of concentrated. It's the exact same process through that entire um, step of, of of our quality program to make sure everybody's making a good quality beer as best as we can. Yeah, and I always love that when you're in a in a brewery and and playing around and. They crack open that fresh uh, box and it's like open up that seal and it's just suddenly that whole room just floods. I mean, even the even the facility that we're in right now, we're in one of your warehouses. Uh, I mean, very first sensation I had today when I walked in. Of course, I'm not smelling anymore because of the climatization. Very first sensation I got was, oh, hops. The whole background note is just hops. Doesn't ba- doesn't suck, huh? In a couple of weeks, it'll be very filled up. So uh, it's, it's why we try to do this early on in, in the harvest season because these buildings will get really filled up. And, uh, you know, we Steve talked about it. We want to be as sustainable as we can. And one of those is not having excess warehousing there and excess air conditioning and CO2 uh, coolants going out into the environment. So we really jam our buildings filled uh, as much as we can once harvest gets going. So uh, you mentioned the, the two-ounce packets, and this is where Alex comes in. Uh, Alex, you got a new online store, so homebrewers can order hops directly from you if they're not available in their area. So let's, let's hear about that. Yeah, so the, the reason um, behind us launching this new e- e-commerce platform is just to reach more brewers and to get more, uh, more of you using our hops and our hop products. Uh, and for those who 
don't have a homebrew shop easily accessible to them, um, our online store is designed to fix that. So we work very closely with a country malt group and LD Carlson, our, uh, our distributors in uh, North America, and we highly encourage you to um, contact them for any pack size that you may need for um, your brewing ventures. Um, for us right now, we um, have not just swag and merchandise, but two-ounce T90 and one-ounce cryo-hot pellets available at yakimachief.com slash shop. So I encourage you to look look that over, um, and it's free shipping, so that's always a bonus. So, And you've got a new app, too, right? Yes, as you can see on your table tents here, we have uh, what we call the Mobile Solutions app. And if you're all familiar with our Hop Variety Handbook that um, is updated annually, um, many of you have probably seen it or use it or still use some uh, version of it. It is now available in a mobile form, and it's part of our sustainability initiative to just try to um, not just increase uh, the flow of this book and all of this material and knowledge, but to... Um, put the planet first, and in this case, the mobile app achieves that. Well, I was going to say, my homebrew shop has, I think, a couple of versions of the, the booklet, mm-hmm. all with a hole punched through it, tied up with a rope right yep. next to the hot fridge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now if we can actually get it on the mobile app, that would be great for pre-planning. Yeah, it's free, so I encourage everyone to have it and just always have it in their back pocket. Now, besides the, the forms of hops that we're all familiar with forever, like the, you know, the, the whole cones and the T90 pellets and the hop extract, you guys have a couple kind of unique products that uh, I really have enjoyed working with uh, in the cryo hops and their kind of sister, the American Nobles. How did that come about, man? That's kind of like a wacky idea. Who came up with that? You know, I think it was a, a team effort. Uh, we had... This is probably going back five or six years ago, and it was kind of right before the merger of Hop Union and Yakima Chief. We had some customers come by and point at that little pile of dust underneath the pellet plant and say, what's that stuff? Well, that's concentrated lupulin, and uh, I want to try some of that in my beer. So our first thought was, as it is, Mike mentioned early, it's just safety and, and food safety. And so our team here, led by Carl Van Evenhoven, went through the process of figuring out how we could produce that in a food-safe manner. And so that's how our cryo product was developed. It took us a couple of years. We built a small pilot plant. And uh, this year, uh, actually last year, expanded that plant to meet up with demand. Uh, but that cryo product uh, really is a concentrated lupulin product. Uh, it's not uh, standardized, so it's kind of what you get. Uh, what you see is what you get. Uh, but it's, we try to get just a pure, unbroken lupulin gland with that product that's got all those little goodies that is protected by Mother Nature's membrane. And the other side of that is the American Nobles, which I've had a chance to work with quite a bit. It's a, a really, really unique product, and I think it's got a lot of potential. It's really cool. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, we've talked a lot about it on the podcast. You and I have been working with them for a couple of years now. But the one question I always get asked from homebrewers is, hey, so when can I get my hands on those things? We've been uh, we've continued to try to understand better how to best use American Nobles, so we continue to do a bit of experimentation around it and how you mix it in with the rest of the, your your hop portfolio. And so we're 
We're slowly introducing it out there, but the plan is to get those out in two-ounce packages again here once uh, we start up our cryo operation uh, in the next couple of weeks. We'll be able to have that available pretty quickly. We still do have a little bit of material sample sizes that we'll try to get out uh, online and get it out to our uh, distributor partners as well. So hopefully that comes sooner rather than later, but definitely by the time uh, 2020 rolls around, uh, January 2020. Well, and I thought it was interesting that you said continuing to look at techniques and earlier today in the talk talking about oh you know if you put it in here you know it's going to reduce haze but if you put it in here it will give you increased shelf stable haze mm-hmm. you know all that sort of good stuff so it's interesting to see the the tools are still being developed around it yeah and i yeah i've started making loggers with them and it's a really really nice hop because it's it's clean and subtle but i mean it's like the the qualities you get from a european noble but with the different flavors from the American hops and stuff. Yeah, and, and if you guys weren't at Annie's uh, talk just now where she was pouring four different samples of Pilsners made with the American Nobles, you missed out because those were good. Yeah, really, and you should go find her and ask her if she has any bottles left. <laughs> so um, what's what's the crop looking like this year? You know, it's, it's a good crop. Uh, we were able to avoid here in the Yakima Valley that week to two weeks of 100 degree plus weather. So it's really allowed for a nice ripening of the crop. Uh, most of our varieties have kind of a split bloom and that secondary bloom never really gets a chance to develop fully. Uh, this year that's happening. So we should have a pretty decent crop. Uh, I was just talking with uh, uh, Ken Mortensen yesterday, our warehouse manager, and and uh, that's always part of the planning is to make sure you've got enough space to put everything. And he's confident we'll, we're going to be able to do that. But quality is really good. Um, the only negative part to this year's crop is the baby crop because we weren't able to get on the fields until the end of March this year because of a late snowfall. Uh, root digging was delayed and therefore planting was delayed. And we ended up starting off five weeks behind and haven't caught up. So... The negatives of baby crop, but the uh, the mature hops in Oregon, Idaho, and Washington all look uh, pretty good. And on top of that, it's very important to us. Uh, we should have a repeat of last year's high bar year for quality. Oh, that's great, man! Makes me feel really secure to brew for the next year. <laughs> You'll be right, all right for at least a year, Danny. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen the way he uses hops? He might be good for about three months. That's right, man. My, my wife won't touch anything with less than 70 IBUs, so I go through a lot of hops. We like your wife. <laughs> so do I. Um, so, like, what's what's coming up in the future for uh, Yakima Chief? You guys have any big plans you can talk about? Well, uh, um, I think two things. One, uh, Alex mentioned uh, our e-commerce rollout, uh, which is first in the United States. We're testing that out to make sure it works really well. Uh, the plan will be to roll that out over time around the world uh, because there are a lot of places it's difficult to get ops. Uh, and as part of that, too, we uh, our board approved uh, a couple of months ago to build a new warehouse in Belgium uh, because we're starting to sell uh, an increasing amount of hops throughout Europe and Africa. So to better serve our customers uh, we want to be able to get more inventory over there. So if a, if a European customer is requesting hops, they don't have to wait for a journey, you know, all the way from Yakima to get there so they can get that a little bit quicker. So those are, those are really kind of big initiatives to try to make it easier for uh, brewery customers around the world to get our hops. 
And, it, and, and again, we talk about quality a lot. A lot of that is making sure that those hops are um, properly uh, refrigerated across the pond and, and, and getting over there and making sure we can do that to, to keep the quality at a really good level. Which reminds me of this wacky idea you were telling us about last night. After which beer was that? Uh, well, it was after my second one. I don't know how many you'd had, but uh, you were talking about a uh, wet hop beer in Korea. Oh, yeah. So where's uh, Mr. Lambert? He's our, one of our salespeople uh, for, in charge of Korea. And, uh, you know, fresh hop beer is pretty fun. And so uh, it's a challenge getting it from here to Seattle, as, as our colleagues know. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna bust our butts to try to do one and, and send an airplane full of hops to Korea, try to pass Korean customs with an MRL and get those hops into a fresh hop beer in Korea because we think that would be really cool, and uh, and beer is supposed to be fun. So if we could if we could do that, then we can get it to, to pretty much anywhere. So uh, because they've got a really tough uh, phytosanitary requirement, so if we can do that, it would be pretty awesome. So how how long from the time picked? To the boil kettle for Korea. Are you so, so you're talking about if uh, if you're doing like a Cannonball Adderley run or something like that, and you got to get the, the hops over to Seattle, get them on a plane. It's a 10 or 11 hour uh, uh, airplane ride from SeaTac uh, to uh, to Seoul, and then you got to get it out of customs, get it cleared, and get it to a brewer so they can go. You know, uh, God willing, you can do it in about 30 hours, I would guess. So, it's a uh, on the on the outer edge, but uh, let's try it. <laughs> really, man, you never know till you try. So, enough about hops. Let's get into something really important. Baseball. <laughs> so, uh, so who's your team this year? Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm a Twins fan, and uh, they're, they're going to score six runs a game. It's just a question whether they'll give up nine or give up three. Uh, but they're going to score runs. How about you, Steve? You know, I've always been a Seattle Mariners fan, at least since 1977 when they were created. Prior to that, I was a Giants fan because that was the closest uh, city geographically, and they had this kid in center field by the name of Willie Mays that I kind of enjoyed watching growing up. And Drew, uh, you're... I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan. I've suffered many, many, many years (laughs) under the Red Sox reign. I seem to be suffering again this year because we seem to be exhibiting the exact same thing the Twins are. It's like, hey, how many runs are we going to give? And then how many runs are the bullpen going to give up? Thank you. And in the meanwhile, I mean, we still have, like, you know, I mean, what, Verlander just pitched his third no-hitter? Yeah. And then, and all of the, uh, like, all that new angle of attack on swings and, like... Yeah, to me, it's interesting. The game is undergoing a transformation. Yes, some people are going to be bored by this, but the game is undergoing a transformation where now every at bat is that big swing attempt. Like there's no more like blooping onto onto first or strikeout, a home run, or a walk. Yeah. Yeah. So like the games are just like it's like oh yeah no it's out of the park or nope he went down swinging. Mike and I were uh, back in uh, Boston for the home brew conference in Providence this mm-hmm. year, and, and actually got to see a couple games at Fenway. Oh, you, you, did you guys stay late or stay early? Or? We stayed through. It was a lot of fun, I and mean, yeah. we stayed the entire game. So two we, games. it was it was the uh, la- laundry series. It was a battle of the socks. So White Sox <laughs> and Red Sox were playing, but uh, I think they won they one and them, lost yeah. the other. Yeah, I, I had I had great big words for uh, Gary Glass when I said, "How can you schedule a home brew conference near Boston?" At the same time that the Red Sox are over in London playing the Yankees yeah, for those exactly. weird games, and the Paw Sox are out of town. Yeah. What are you doing to me, man? <laughs> kind of ruined Drew's whole week. Well, you know, we uh, at uh, Home BrewCon, we launched Clusterfuck It, yep. uh, yes. which uh, was the brainchild of Steve. And uh, 
you know, Steve, after being 40 years or 42 years now of a Mariners fan, says, I know a clusterfugget when I see it. And that's, <laughs> that, that's how the name came about. <laughs> that's great, man. And I, I had a chance to brew with those recently. Those are a really interesting hop. Make a nice ale, yeah. Yeah, right. and especially for me, because I'm, I'm a real Fuggles hater. <laughs> I was going to say, that, that's the, the critical part about it. This is why the, these blends are important. I mean, you guys have so many blends now. But blends are important because sometimes they can take away the characters of hop that you don't like and accentuate the things that you do. Yeah, I, that, that's the thing, man. Those hops are just really, really nice, and I think it's because of the blend in them. Is, is that something that uh, is going to be around for a while, or is that a one-off? Steve's got another one for next year. So it's a diff- so cluster fugget is a, a cluster nugget and fuggo, and then next year's a... N- next year, and we were inspired by the, the kid at the College World Series that right. caught a, a foul ball in one hand. Right. And then, did you see that? Yeah, and then, held on to <laughs> So we're going to come out next year with Cluster Chug It. <laughs> and we're going to use Chinook instead of Fuggle. Oh, man. Great. I'll like that one even better, I'm sure. I'm a big Chinook fan. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us today. We really appreciate it. We love being here. And I just want to tell anybody who's listening out there, Get your butt here to Hop and Brew School. It is fun and it is educational, and you're going to have a great time. And thanks, guys, for doing this. Thank you, Danny. No problem. Yeah, thank, you, thank you for bringing us up here. And yeah, you're going to hear later some more reactions uh, to Hop and Brew School from uh, from a first time uh, participant. Cool. So. Okay, thank John, you. it's your turn. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Inspired by iconic Belgian beers perfect for summer, Yeast is releasing the three favorite Belgians, or Drie Favorita Belga, this quarter. 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3538 Leuven Pale Ale, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are available now through the end of September. These original private culture collection strains are sought after for wit beers, Belgian pale ales, strong ales, blonde ales, Flanders, and more for good reason. The aromatics of fruit orchards and fields at harvest, quenching tartness, effervescent citrus, florals and spiciness, complexity and balance. Qualities like these are irresistible for pairing with fresh-picked fruit such as cherries, peaches, apricots, and raspberries. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of essential brewing books like How to Brew by John Palmer, Designing Great Beers by Ray Daniels, and their newest title, Simple Homebrewing, by expert homebrewers Denny Gon and Drew Beecham. Visit BrewersPublications.com to shop these titles and more. We're going to have Mr. John Palmer, that globetrotter, joining us to tell us uh, where in the world he's been. Have a seat there, buddy. For those of you who don't know, John was the technical editor of our latest book, Simple Homebrewing, which will be on sale right outside that door starting at 2 o'clock. 
get your copy. It's my uh, retirement fund right there. Yeah, so I was the one that caught all the misspellings of Fuggle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what I really liked was that we spewed all this heresy in this book, and John really didn't yell at us once. No, I mean, uh, I enjoy technical editing for that. You know, it it not only broadens my horizons, um, makes me you know question uh, generally held principles, but you know, when you come up with a different point of view to view to your own. Um, you can ask those questions that kind of increases understanding for both of you. Well, no, I, I agree. I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I still read, you know, a ton of material is because yeah. I always want to go, I want to hear somebody say something that makes me go, wait, really? Well, and, and it, it teaches you to think about your own beliefs in a different way. Yeah, know? yeah. So, so John, you're like on the road all the time, it seems like these days. So, uh, Yeah, it, it is... Uh, a real privilege to get invited uh, to competitions and conferences all over the world. And uh, oh, he, oh, great! He's got the list. He said he was going to make a list here. Yeah, I, I finally decided. You know, if I am going to talk about where I've been, I probably should write it down because otherwise, I won't remember. <laughs> so uh, this year, I counted up. I have 18 trips, um, most of which I've already gone on. I have what six, seven left to go. But I've been to Chihuahua, Mexico, Charlotte, North Carolina, Tampico, Mexico, Denver for a craft brew conference, Cartagena, Colombia, Monterrey, Mexico, Vitoria, Brazil, uh, Homebrew Con there in, in Rhode Island, Quito, Ex- Ec- uh, Ecuador, uh, Mexico City, Asuncion, Paraguay, and uh, that brings us up to... Uh, today here in, in lovely Yakima. Uh, next and week is uh, California Craft Beer Conference in Long Beach. Uh, then I've got a, a, a two-week trip to uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, uh, Puerto Alegre, Brazil. A week, up, week after that, Bogota, Colombia. Then Stockholm, Sweden. Calgary, Canada. Toronto, Canada. Back to Mexicali, Mexico. And then finally, in December, I've been invited out to Beijing, China. Wow. So that would be pretty cool. Cool, man. I'm feeling tired just from the list. Really? You know, I was thinking I'd love to do that, but only about 10% of it. <laughs> well, so now that you've been to all these places, what are you finding as commonalities? Well, it's, it's really interesting. The, the, the one commonality that I can always point to is that brewers are brewers around the world. Um, they're always nice folks, interested in sharing brewing information, interested in sharing good beer. Um, and uh, so, you know, people say, don't you get tired of traveling? It's like, well, I'm going to an interesting place, meet nice people, and get free beer. <laughs> what's, what's not to like? <laughs> yeah. Really, well, what's not to like is the 30-hour flights and stuff yeah, like that, that's you know. But, uh, yeah, no, I, the... Um, you know, a lot of these I go to our conferences where we, you know, I hear different points of view, uh, different experiences. Um, but going back to your question, Drew, one, one, I guess, trend I see all over the world is kind of this uh, cycle of beers to brewers where there's that, there's that period of those, you know, first bad batches, you know, 
the, all the usual suspects, as it were, you know, acetaldehyde, diacetyl, uh, yeah, chlorophenol. Then there's that period of, of good batches where you've licked those, you know, those basic problems. And then there's the, the growth of the brewer and the region to say, let's brew strong beers. You know, let's brew very hoppy beers, big beers, Russian imperial stouts, um, you know, 18% alcohol kind of thing. Um, and then uh, once that uh, hurdle has been, been passed, so they think, then it becomes, I can ferment anything. <laughs> and uh, then you get, in, you get some, some sour beers, you get some fruit beers, barrel-aged, a lot of experimentation by the brewers. Uh, after that, then it kind of comes back to what we consider classic styles. Uh, you know, German lagers, um, British uh, pale ales, um, Munich Dunkel, and, and so on. Um, a lot of classic styles that you really do get a lot of satisfaction from, you know, these more sessionable beers. Uh, after that, then, um, you know, once, once a brewer has kind of mastered those classic styles, then you start to see some real innovation where a new style may be created with, you know, a good harmony mm-hmm. of, of, you know, characters. Well, I'm thinking uh, particularly about my experience in Brazil a couple yeah, of years back, yeah. and like when I, when I was in Brazil, there was a lot of, I mean, their, their primary their primary problem was not information, right? I mean, we're right. we're putting out enough information out there that everybody can now actually gain from it. So these other countries that are coming up, their scenes are not that far behind us because we are we're, we're giving them a lot of good stuff to start with. Right. But like their big problem was yeast. Uh, right. And and that was a, that was their struggle. But the thing I noticed amongst the beers was, yeah, like in Brazil when we when I was there, it was a lot of big imperial stouts and people talking about how how old their imperial stouts were. Like, oh yes, yeah, yes. like hey, yeah, no, here's <laughs> it, and there were a lot of obsession with age, not just imperial stouts, but in other things as well. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, no, this well, this is an 18 month old uh, imperial stout. This is perfect. And and then almost immediately afterwards, you know, like two years after being there, then they come up with that Catarina sour thing. Right, yeah, like as a as a, a new thing. Right, right. So it, it is interesting to see some of that play out. Yeah, and I, I really I, I've seen this same pattern all around the world. Um, Danny just Danny just fell off the chair. Uh, but yeah, I mean there is there is that progression I think in terms of what a brewer is discovering, even what a country is discovering in terms of their beer consumption. Um, yeah, strong beers. Uh, then, then um, exotic beers, if you will, fruit beers, uh, and then coming kind of coming back to the some of the sessionable beers. And I mean, where do you think that we are right now? I mean, as both homebrewers and as professional brewers, I think here in the United States we're in that sessionable beer new new style uh, arena where uh, we have craft brewers with you know 20 years experience. And in creating, you know, finely crafted uh, classic styles, and and we've seen, you know, new styles emerge, such as a double IPA, and um, some new sours, um, hazy IPA, and um, some of the other new styles, where it is not simply a fad, but one that you know gains general acceptance, um, and you know, you know. 
selling you know thousands of barrels a year. Mm-hmm. Well, and thinking particularly since we are here at Hopkins Brew School, right? I mean, what do you see happening with hop usage? I mean, you I mean, you gave a great talk earlier today about you know dry hopping and and other impacts. So spill some of that details. Sure. Well, you know, I think we're seeing a refinement in um, in hop usage as a result. Um, it's not a matter of just throwing more hops at a beer. It's about, you know, making a considered decision on where those hops are best utilized in the beer to bring out particular characters, whether it's bitterness or aroma or, you know, uh, specific esters that can only be obtained you know, say by biotransformation. Well, and I uh, I walked in at the end of your talk because unfortunately I was giving a talk of my own. Of course, yes. Um, and you had some examples about like the different characteristics from placement of hops. Like I think it was Cascade that you were talking about. Yeah, it was Cascade. So it, 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 can you can you summarize that finding? Yeah, that was that, like I said, that was from a Sierra Nevada study that they presented last year. Um, they basically took the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale uh, wort, split it into four fermenters. Uh, did a control with no dry hops, one dry hopping uh, at the beginning, or one, you know, one batch dry hopped at the beginning of fermentation, one dry hopped at the middle of fermentation, and then one dry hopped after fermentation, which would be actually a, a more traditional dry hopping scheme. They replicated that experiment three times, each in each case presented the beers to their trained sensory panel. And the spider plot showed that there was a definite progression or a change in the overall hop aroma character of those beers, um, going from uh, tropical fruit and citrus to uh, less trop- less fruity, uh, more herbal, and then finally to a, uh, a uh, more catty, dank, sulfury kind of character. And, with and the, does that progress as, you know, in fermentation, post-fermentation, and then like traditional dry hopping? Well, um, from middle. beginning of fermentation to middle fermentation to after fermentation. It was, uh, on a, it was a surprise to me that what we consider traditional dry hopping after fermentation had the most sulfury character out of the four uh, uh, samples. Wow, that really is interesting, man. Yeah. And and again, this this is with uh, standard Sierra Nevada, you know, uh, ingredients. Uh, their, their pale ale, um, their you know Chico California ale yeast, um, and to sort of see and Cascade hops. So to, we actually see a progression of you know, change of flavor and aroma with that. Yeah, you got to figure you're gonna if you're gonna trust any craft brewery to pull this off, it'd be like Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, to to trust on that science. Uh, all right, so. With the hopping, I mean, we're there, but also because you know you've been around. I also saw there was a really great talk that we had earlier about the terroir of hops. Right, right. Do you see that impact as well worldwide? I mean, are you seeing different things coming out? Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, um, lots of lots of other brewing countries such as Argentina and Brazil, um, Paraguay. They're all and, and even Mexico are experimenting with growing hops. Um, Again, you know, as you noted a few years ago in Brazil, there is, you know, challenges of ingredient availability, whether it's yeast strain or hop right. freshness and so on. So lots of countries are investing um, in uh, fresher ingredients, and one way they're doing that is planting their own hops. But um, I think 
terroir does have a very strong impact on uh, hop character. Um, Argentina had planted Cascade hops uh, there. <laughs> ah, the infamous Argentinian Cascade. Yeah. Very, very different from the, the Pacific Northwest Cascade. One one dramatic example I got recently was uh, Chinook from Michigan. You know, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the Chinook we get here in the Northwest is very piney and pungent. And some friends, hi Jeff and Susan, sent me some uh, Chinooks from Michigan, and they had like this pineapple character to them. Totally, totally different than what you think of Chinook as being. Uh, I just loved it, but you know, it's, so it's almost like when you talk about a hop variety. You also need to talk about where it's from yes, because it yes. won't be the same from place to place. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Anne gave a gave a very interesting talk about the right. terroir, and uh, it was interesting to for her. She showed her data uh, clearly showed the difference between uh, Cascade or was it no Amarillo from uh, Washington to Idaho uh, to a German uh, grower of that same rhizome, you know. So, in all your travels and everything, have you gotten any kind of sense of where homebrewing is heading? Um, I guess I, I I don't know where it's heading. I think it, it's increasing in popularity worldwide. Um, you know, especially I think South America is a homebrewing hotbed. Um, craft beer, as a result, is is building steadily there. Um, their market share is still, you know, way behind what it is here in the United States, but uh, the enthusiasm is is rightfully there, um, and uh, I've seen it in Europe, um, and I think China is now is going to uh, be a another home brewing or craft beer uh, capital as well because. Um, we're seeing increasing interest from China in, in hops and craft Yeah, beer. man, that's kind of the impression I've been getting, too. It's like, you know, I, I, like on, on all the beer forums I'm on and stuff like that, Chinese posts have gone from, like, down here to way up here, yeah, you know? Yeah. And that's happened quickly, so assuming that's kind of like an exponential thing, then... Yeah, I was, in, I was at Seabrew, uh, uh, the Southeast Asia Brewers Conference, uh, a couple years ago, I've been been twice now, and yeah, every year the enthusiasm across you know the Pacific uh, in that region has has grown considerably. Cool, cool. Well, man, thank you so much for taking time oh, out of your day. My to be pleasure here. to be here. It was a, thank you for like riding around with us yesterday too. Now, <laughs> John, well. John and I got kind of a special tour yesterday. Well, and I got to see the experimental hop field. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. really, that was really really cool. So. Yeah. I, it was a real treat to go through the experimental hop field and find a white tag that Jason had probably left behind, saying, "Oh, this is a you know an interesting hop," and to be able to pluck a cone and rub it ourselves, and it's like, "Oh yeah, there's some dill or, yeah. or a jalapeno flavor." Or what the hell does he see in that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mr. John Palmer. All right, and so as we were getting ready to come to Hop and Brew School. We actually put out a call to our listeners, uh, thanks to our partners here with the Yakima Chief Hops. They offered to give away a pair of tickets uh, to a listener who uh, wrote in. And so uh, here's what our winning entry said. And by the way, this was chosen completely blind and randomly by a couple people here at Yakima Chief Hops. And, and, Denny, and nobody and nobody knew except for me who this was. It says here, 
choose me. Because as a Washington resident and lady brewer, I feel duty-bound to be the best hoppy beer brewer on the west side of the state. I love the homebrewing community. It made me a better person. I just want to learn to brew the best beer possible. And now, from those words, introduce yourself. Hi. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, sorry, I haven't been on a recording before. It's weird to hear your this voice. Is, uh, this is uh, our winner of the contest, Cassie Salinas, who's here with her husband, Frank, and it's your anniversary. Yeah, so our anniversary is actually today. We were married one year ago, exactly. It's our first anniversary. Double congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. First anniversary at Yakima Chief Hoppin' Brew School. You can see my handsome husband. I guess the radio people can. Uh, podcast people can. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so one year ago we were married, and we were looking into what we could do for our anniversary to, like, um, my husband and I are both homebrewers. We've been li- listening for a long time. I actually uh, met you guys, what, uh, three homebrew cons ago? I think so, yeah. Um, uh, really amusing talk. I-, I asked you at the end to help us out with uh, a Hawaiian princess beer, which is a pecan, not pecan, sorry, pecan is the one we're doing for our anniversary. Uh, it's a macadamia nut uh, coffee beer. That uh, It's a really delicious beer that we were kind of just tinkering with this recipe, and we asked you for advice, and you guys gave us some great advice, and we've been best friends ever since. <laughs> Absolutely. So so what do you think about Hop and Brew School? This was the best way to celebrate our anniversary, with homebrew being such a big part wait, wait, of... Maybe second best. Maybe second best. <laughs> um, it, it's Homebrewing is such a big part of our lives. Like We're really involved with our homebrew club, the North Seattle Homebrewers. Um, we are both just like, it's something that brings us closer together and we can both express our love and our passion, not just for beer, but for each other through these like delicious beers. That's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I think most of all, uh, I've learned so much about hops. Like I know that sounds, of course it's called hop and brew school and we're out here in hop country, but I've learned so much, not just about how they grow and how people use them, but like other applications of hops that I had never thought about before, like Annie's talk earlier on using noble hops to do traditional like German style pilsners, but to make use that use an American noble hop to do that, it was really cool. Never thought of doing that before, right? So, is there like one big thing that really blew you away that you hadn't expected? Oh man, um, I really loved going to the experimental fields with Jason Peralt. That was so cool. Like, uh, just like him explaining how they go through these, the hill process to figure out which hops they want to have. So much work goes into producing these hops. Like you, as an end consumer, you get the little pellet. You don't really think about the years, like decades of research that goes into it. And that blew my mind. Like, 11 years some of these plants have been just under research. Or more even. Yeah, Yeah, you know. And And that's crazy. And what a a small percentage of the plants that they start with actually make it to market. Yeah, and we went through the experimental field. They're like, maybe one or two of these plants will make it to next year. And they're like hundreds. And you're like, oh, no, you can do it. Yeah. (laughs) Like rooting for the plants. As we were walking around, we were going... Oh, that one's clearly not going to make it because it was like this weird little spindly thing, and you just felt bad for the plant. Or at least I did. I did, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you guys are so sympathetic. We're just sentimental. Empathy. (laughs) So you're going to come back again sometime? Oh, I'd love to come back. I mean, the big thing for me is knowing that, because a lot of it, at first I was worried it would be a little bit commercial focused, because, I mean, like they're big consumers, they're commercial brewers. But there was a lot of information that was useful for home brewers. Like uh, John Palmer earlier was talking about uh, that interesting research they did at Sierra Nevada. Mm -hmm. That spider chart, I want. I took a picture of it because I want to put it up like next to our, our brewing equipment. It was so interesting <laughs> to think just when you 
apply hops, and that doesn't matter if you're brewing 13 barrels or if you're brewing three gallons. Like that, those that information is valuable for both. So I'd love to come back. And honestly, just being in hop country is fun. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially this time of year when the harvest is going on, it's just like so much excitement everywhere. Well, and it is crazy. And I mean, I've I've been impressed by the scale of things. I haven't been here as long as you guys have, but I've been impressed by the scale of things. I've been impressed by the hospitality, and just also just. Yeah, the sheer amount of information. Yeah, it's a lot of information. Some, I'm, I'm hoping they send out all the slides later. <laughs> all right, well, any other thoughts about Hop and Brew School? Um, I would say I, I want to echo your sentiments. The hospitality has been incredible. Like, huge shout-out to Yakima Chief. They've thrown together a really excellent event, um, especially considering the scale. It's been so – it's been really great, so I really appreciate them having me. Um, but, yeah, other than that, just happy anniversary, Frank. <laughs> oh, I love birds. So uh, everybody out there, keep your eyes open for our giveaway next year. We'll be giving away a couple tickets to Hop and Brew School again next year. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that if you haven't gotten here before, you get here. Or if you've been here before and know how great it is, you know, you'll be coming back. And, of course, don't forget, uh, you know, I promised this, I promised you guys this before, but we will have you guys on the podcast to talk about the, the beers. Yeah, if anyone wants to look up the Hawaiian Princess beer, it's actually on uh, beer, uh, Brewer's Friend. We put it on Brewer's Friend. So if you want to try brewing it, it's a pretty fun one. Cool. And don't forget that you can also support the podcast by clicking on the Brewer's Friend link on our website and joining our affiliate program. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even pay me to do that. I know. He's really good. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap things up here, I want to give one more big shout-out to all the people at Yakima Chief, Mike, Steve, Alex, Nicole, everybody else whose names uh, I'm not getting in there. Uh, you guys put on a killer event, and thank you so much for having us all come in. Thank you all for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our experiments and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I'm on almost every beer discussion forum known to man. Uh, and some only known to foreign life forms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mainly I hang out on the AHA forum. You can find me there. Drew's on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. And if you want to ask us a question or uh, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and we get a lot of that. You can email us. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always call or text us at 626-765-1-ALE. Yeah, you can, you can bother me in the middle of the night by calling that number. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, please do, please do. He's up anyway. So uh, until next time... Always remember to brew experimentally. More brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Brew.